so nice to walk together. And um, I can really feel everybody's commitment to dropping as deep as you can in this retreat. And um, one of the nice things about walking meditation is that even though you're aware of your own feet and your inhale and your exhale, there's also a sense of other bodies moving too. And um, in your peripheral vision, and even with some sound, you can really feel how we're all one body walking together. And um, if you honestly and courageously and fiercely sit still, you'll realize the value of your life. And part of this practice is to drop down into your life in a way where you can reach and open that vein of kindness. What in yoga we call the sashumna nadi. The word nadi means river. Sashumna means great. It's that great river of kindness. Even the central axis of the human body is this great river of kindness. About 80 years after the death of the Buddha, some of the community started to build stupas, which are shrines. Maybe some of you, if you've traveled in Buddhist countries, although there's some on this continent also, uh, can come across these shrines, these stupas. And, um, of course, as it happens with human beings, different kinds of people were drawn to different kinds of stupas. And uh, different schools and different cliques began to emerge. And around one of the stupas, so the academics tell us, uh, a lot of them non-monastic practitioners gathered together to practice and to talk, and I would assume also to gossip and to get to know one another. Um, and over time, this actually became uh, the majority of the Sangha, which was called at the time Maha Sangha. Maha means majority. And um, because they were non-monastics, they were lay people, they were householders like you and I, um, they started to emphasize other aspects of the teachings that the elders weren't necessarily emphasizing. And the other thing that was happening at the time was the arhats, these are the perfected beings of the Buddha's time, were seen closely by the community and were maybe not so perfect after all. Have you ever been around a perfect being? 
And after a while, you notice that they also are in conditioned existence. And they have flaws, like every human should. And one of the developments in this Mahasanga was to de-emphasize understanding the Buddha as a perfect human being. And instead, to focus more on the notion of the Buddha as being a cosmic principle or this river of kindness that's in all of us. And, this group suggested, instead of focusing on becoming a Buddha, to recognize that not only are you already a Buddha, but you can also become a Bodhisattva. And they cultivated this term, Bodhisattva, which is what I'd like to talk about this afternoon. The word bodhi comes from the Sanskrit root bud, which means intelligent or awake. And sattva, in this sense, means a character. So a bodhisattva is an awakening, enlivening, enlightening character that you make of your character somebody who is awakening. Implicit in what later becomes Mahayana Buddhism, and as this notion of bodhisattva develops, is this idea that you can't wake up without others. That you need others to wake up, and that we can't wake up if we're all interdependent, unless everyone else is also awake. In other words, the bodhisattva is someone who puts off her own enlightenment in order to serve other beings. Someone who, right at the edge of nirvana, turns around and recognizes the interdependence of all things. Just like we sit here and feel our breathing. And simultaneously, the squirrels are also breathing. Can you feel that? The same air. And the fish, swimming under those little huts on the frozen ice, they're also breathing the same air. And not just spatially, but also temporally. So you are breathing literally the same molecules as the Buddha or other great bodhisattvas like the Dalai Lama, Norman and Molly, Rachel Carson. So, one of the key teachings in this framework is called the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, where the Buddha wants to explain to the Sangha this notion of interdependence. And so he tells 
presumably through social media, that he, he tells the Sangha that he is going to um, preach. And he sits down and he pulls out a parasol and places it right in front of him. And this is a large umbrella that is made up of jewels. And in every single jewel, you can see the reflection of every other jewel in the parasol. So imagine this. Anywhere there's a jewel, you look at that jewel, and it reflects every other jewel in the parasol. Presumably, if you looked into any one of those jewels, you would see every image that's possible to see in 360 degrees. And the Buddha says nothing. There are many uh, suttas also where the Buddha has nothing to say, which is the teaching. And part of what we're doing in this practice is to drop down into our own lives to recognize that this, this quality that we call bodhisattva, this quality of serving all beings, is actually an ethical expression of interdependence. Last month, while uh, Daryl and Ross and Pascal Claire and I and others were enjoying the Montreal Zen Poetry Festival, a massive earthquake ripped a 400-kilometer-wide and 160-kilometer-long hole in the Earth's crust just off the coast of Japan. And then, following that, a tsunami. And most of the devastation from that earthquake was not from the tsunami or the earthquake, but from human-built, the human-built world, like cars floating really fast down rivers, or the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Fifty workers that were called the Faceless Fifty that I renamed the Fearless 50, volunteered to stay at that nuclear power plant and to let out steam and to dump water on it so that there would not be a nuclear meltdown. This is a bodhisattva practice. And so is what we're doing right here. This may seem really far away from nuclear reactor number three. And at the same time, when you sit still on your cushion 
and you work with your habits, your obsessions, your addictions, your greed, your anger, your anxiety and fear, that is also a profound practice of social action, of service, because you're learning how to take care of your moods, your reactivity. So many of us, we know so much about our minds. But in this practice, knowing about your mind is not really so helpful. But really to sit with mind and all the weather patterns that move through mind, body, and heart. This is an ethical practice. In the sense that when we take care of our potential for causing harm internally and externally, then we are undertaking a vow to serve all beings. I know that some of us come to practice because I am suffering. I'm suffering. But you know, over time, as we start to practice and learn how to take care of ourselves, then we can begin to see how we are embedded in Sangha, in community, and not just human community. I remember what got me practicing was when I was 12 years old, I um, I had learned a lot about practice from an uncle of mine who was schizophrenic. He lived in a mental institution and mostly after school from about grade one till grade seven, I, I spent about three days a week with him after school. And he was a chain smoker and he taught me the fine art of smoking. <laughs> and uh, one day after school, I used to go on the roof of the school when school was over and have a cigarette. And this was my meditation practice that I learned from him. We would study the Dhammapada, the Buddha's teachings, and the Bhagavad Gita, and we would sit and smoke cigarettes. So this is what I was doing alone. I had my Gita with me, and I was looking out over the neighborhood, And about two kilometers away was um, where I had to be in a couple of hours, which is the synagogue where I was studying uh, Hebrew so that I could have my bar mitzvah. And um, the sun was setting. It was late fall. Sun sets really early. And I remember all the roofs of all the houses were orange. It looked like the whole neighborhood was on fire. And I remember looking at all the nannies pushing strollers and the salaried people coming home from work. And I had this feeling that wasn't quite anxiety, but was this experience that everybody in the neighborhood is on fire is suffering. 
is not satisfied. But what was different about this thought than one I had ever had before was that I also felt it in myself, that me too, that maybe this suffering that I feel is the same suffering that everybody feels. And it was the first time I think I ever recognized the parasol, interdependence. This sense that it's not just me who feels this, that maybe what I'm feeling is what everyone's feeling. And I did a funny thing. I I went home and I said to my mom, okay, I'm going to do my bar mitzvah, but the deal is, as soon as I turn 13, I don't want to be Jewish anymore (laughs) and go to Hebrew school. That was the deal. She told me I was (laughs) anti-Semitic. We fought for another five years after that. I don't feel that way anymore. Tetsugin, who was a, a Kobe monk, um, his he was an artist, and his dream uh, was to take the sutras that were in Chinese and transcribe them into Japanese in woodblock prints. Seven hundred sutras. Can you imagine this undertaking? Has anyone here ever made a woodblock print before? This is a traditional Japanese woodblock print. Not only does he want to translate, but he wants to make 700 woodblock prints. So he didn't have a benefactor. And so he was a poor artist monk who traveled around in Japan to raise money. And if you've ever had to raise money and you don't have a benefactor, you know how hard, like 25 cents here, 50 cents there, another dime here. And he got most of the money ready and the Kobe or the Uji River in Japan flooded and thousands of people lost their lives and even more their homes, their children, their health, their belongings. And he was so deeply studied in the sutras because he was transcribing them and was so moved that he took all the money and he bought blankets and food and material to build shelter and gave all the money to these people who had lost their homes. And then, a few years later, decided to undertake this project again. And he started raising money, a dime here, a nickel there, and eventually, after three years, had enough money to start the project again. And there was a flu epidemic. And of course, he took all the money and he helped people find the right herbs and the right hospitality so they would be taken care of. And then in his old age, he ran out of steam. And eventually he got just enough money that apparently he printed about a dozen of these woodblock prints of sutras 
Um, and in Japan, uh, people tell this story and they tell their children how he created three sutras, but only the first two really made a difference. He knew how to serve. He was fluid. He, he could live like a river. And mainly this is where we get stuck. Our lives change, and we can't move with them. We can't shift them. We're holding on to old ways of storying our lives. Maybe a retreat like this is actually a time where you can look again at your life and you can see, is this way I've been serving still helpful? He thought, Tetsugin thought, that the best way to serve was to use his skill as an artist and make these prints. And then things change. Maybe a bodhisattva is only somebody who knows what they love and does it and acts. Some people say that going on retreat is turning away from the world. But actually, when you come on retreat, you might notice that you're turning into the world that maybe you notice the wind maybe you notice the river out here and these trees with a perspective you may not have had when you were hemmed in by all of your ideas about trees and birds and water or maybe you don't even see trees and birds and water Maybe you go up to your room and you wash your face and you feel the water in your hands and on your cheeks and you contemplate the journey of the water all the way from the river or underground <coughs> through all the systems it takes to flow into your tap in your shared bathroom. And then, not only that, but when you splash the water on your face, to also feel how your face is 73% water. Yeah? And then when you walk down to the river, maybe you even realize that you're not walking to the river. This is really just the river going to the river. When you wash your face, it's not so much you washing your face. It's just the water washing itself. But when we're so caught up in planning, obsessing, we really miss this level of interdependence of our relational lives. 
And this is not such a popular thing to say in enlightenment circles. But maybe the old ideas of enlightenment as being vertical, I practice so I get awakened and I'm out of here, out of this body, out of this circular existence of birth and death. Maybe this is not so helpful in our times of climate change and growing inequality in our failing economic system and in our ecology. Maybe we need to take a more horizontal approach to practice and really see how what we can wake up to is this. Just this body. Just this breath. And one another. Relational transcendence rather than vertical transcendence. In other words, we wake up through our relationships with one another. We wake up by waking up the intelligence of this body to see where the prana is stuck in the body is also to see where it's stuck in your attention. So that we can heal the immune system, the digestive system, the emotional system, the respiratory system, the food chain, our families, our government. And this is the path of the bodhisattva that maybe you put off your own transcendence because you see how we're all tangled, really tangled. Last week, I was really, really um, affected by what was going on in Japan and how the only thing the engineers could do at the nuclear power plant was to let out steam because uranium cannot get hotter than 1,200 degrees Celsius or the zirconium lining that wraps around the rods melts and then you have a nuclear meltdown and the helicopter pilots who were flying over the nuclear power plants were and dropping seawater on them to keep them cool were receiving radiation of 400 millisieverts an hour which is something like 10,000 times what a Canadian nuclear power plant worker is allowed to receive in a year. And the International Atomic Energy Agency claims that they'll die a horrible death within two years. So I went on to blogs in Tokyo to see what were people's experiences of 
this bodhisattva practice. And um, I'm just going to read a couple of things that I found in, in some blogs. These are from different people. I saw an old lady at a bakery shop. It was totally past their closing time, but she was giving out free bread. There was a lady holding a sign that said, Please use our toilet. She was opening her family's house for anybody to use the restroom. My co-worker wanted to help somehow, even if it was only one person. So he wrote a sign. If you're okay on a motorcycle, I will drive you home. He stood in the cold with that sign, and then I saw him take someone home, all the way to Tokorozawa. Here's a blog, a blogger in Kyoto. When I was waiting at the platform so tired and exhausted, a homeless person came to us and gave us cardboard to sit on. Even though I usually ignore that homeless man, that day he was ready to serve our family. An old man at the evacuation shelter said, What's going to happen now? This is an evacuation shelter 18 miles away from the nuclear power plant. This old man is sitting on the ground, studying the ground. You can imagine if you've just been through this many tremors that your eyes are always on the ground. And he turns to a high school student beside him and says, what are we going to do now? And the high school student says, don't worry, we're going to fix it back. We're going to fix it back. And then the high school student begins to rub the old man's spine. This comment really stays with me. We're going to fix it back. This is the high school generations. Time now. To fix it back. How do you do that? With radiation in your soil and in your water and in the marrow of your bones. So, the Buddha had something to say about this. That the way you act as a bodhisattva has two pieces to it. Number one is a critique of early Buddhism where action is focused on intention. Because you can't control the outcome of an action, the only thing you can really get clear on is intention. And in the Bodhisattva path, the suggestion is intention is not enough. that your actions have to make a difference. They have to make a difference. And the other side of the bodhisattva path is that you need tools. Some of you maybe have seen the image of Avalokiteshvara 
This is the Bodhisattva of compassion, who in India is a man and then moves eastward, becomes a woman. And um, I, I have an image of an Avalokiteshvara that is in Japan that I'm going to visit next year in April. And she has a thousand arms, and in every single hand is a tool, a measuring tape, a rake, a hoe, uh, scissors, an iPhone, you know. And um, in every arm is a tool. And if you look at the image of any bodhisattva, in Buddhist art, they always are holding something. They have a tool. Sometimes a palm, just held up like this, which is like saying, everything's okay. You ever have someone rub your back? Everything's okay. And for us, our job in this practice is to take our wounds that surface in this practice, and to turn them into tools. To transform your own raw spot into a tool that can serve yourself and others, and not just one direction. It has to serve in both directions. You can't serve others unless you're also taking care of yourself. Maybe some of you, your tool is that you can do accounting. Or you can clothe people. Or you can nurse. Or you can be still. Which is also a kind of action. Because you don't know, you don't know, none of us know how we're going to be needed to serve in two years, in five years, you don't know. So maybe what we're doing here is like preventative medicine, you know, or maybe it's more like craftsmanship honing our tools. Your wounds are your your the, the the kind of like collection of wounds that you have in your life is your sangha it's the community that you learn the idiosyncratic way that you get agitated the particular language that makes you angry or the places where you hide. 
or compartmentalize. And in the practice, that's going to get revealed. And not just when you're sitting here, but, you know, in the social scene. Janet used the term uh, retreat culture. Retreat culture sounds really great, but it's, it's a kind of torture, you know, to be around other people all day, share a room. And this will bring up our relational anxieties and habits, and we get to work on that too. This is not just a solo practice. We're really working together here. And then these, these old patterns show up and they become tools. Where then, oh, I see what, I think I see what's going on for her. I recognize that. Or just that you can go home to your family. And maybe appreciate aspects that you can't appreciate when you're stressed out. Or maybe you have not been taking care of yourself. Today we practiced yoga postures, you know. And the yoga postures really show imbalances. Maybe places in the body where we've been really sleepy where we need some virya, some enthusiasm, some energy, and maybe places where we've been overdoing it, you know, working too much, the breath can't get still. Or, psychologically, maybe you're noticing that there are patterns of sensations that when they show up, you're only in stories about them. Stories that are a kind of defense against really feeling. And the yoga postures are designed to increase the spectrum of sensation so that you can be in those patterns, feeling the breath, being fully in your life. And... um, they become a kind of mirror. It's like I said about sitting. You can know a lot about sitting. Most people, they read about meditation for about a decade before they ever try it. Nowadays, they're called nightstand Buddhists. Have you heard this term? The publishers love it. And then one day, (coughs) you realize it's it's time to stop. shopping for new images and more stuff. So I thought I'd end with a little koan to give you as a kind of practice that you can all work with. So it's a story about a woman. There's not so many koans with women. There's a koan with a woman. And she... um, has practiced many years and still doesn't feel 
like she's really dropped into it. And she goes to visit an old teacher of hers in a monastery with gardens and a river like this one. And she gets to the monastery and says, where, where is the head teacher? And the, te- and, and the students say, out in the garden. So she goes out, and you can picture the gardens, this is a Chinese story, probably like gardens and rice paddies, you know, with probably some walkways and little dikes and, and, and larger rivers flowing through. And she walks out over some bridges and finds her elderly teacher and says, I want to enter the path, which I would translate as, I want to enter my life. It's like such a humble question. Have you ever felt this in your life? Okay, I'm done. I want to enter my life. I've been trying to escape. Or maybe, and maybe this was this woman's story, maybe she was even using her practice to try and escape. Some of us do this with our meditation practice. Like, just get me from retreat to retreat to retreat. <laughs> I don't want to see my family. You know? <clears throat> How can I get out of this? You know? So she asks her teacher, how can I really enter the path? And her teacher says, Do you hear the sound of the water in the drainage ditch? And she says, Yes. Uh-huh. Hear the trickling. And the teacher says, Okay, enter there. It's a peculiar poem, isn't it? Peculiar story. How do you enter your life? Do you hear the sound of the fan? Enter there. Are you deep in loneliness? Enter there. Do you feel pain in your sacrum? Enter there. How do you enter the Dharma? How do you enter this path? How do you become a bodhisattva? You enter here. Whatever is arising, (coughs) this is what you become intimate with. So for every question somebody wrote on a little piece of paper that's taped to the bulletin board, I could have just wrote back, enter there. (laughs) If being a bodhisattva means serving the interdependent world, that includes you. This summer I spent time with, last summer I spent time with a wonderful teacher named Bernie Glassman. And he said, Do you know how big your sangha is? 
didn't really understand what he meant. How big is your neighborhood, he said. Go and think about that. And I thought about that for a few days. And then I had this memory of when I first started practicing. Seriously. I was really depressed. And my whole neighborhood was my legs. If I could get them out of bed in the morning, it was a successful day. And now, my neighborhood is the west end of Toronto, Armprior, Halifax, Vancouver, Madison, Wisconsin, Copenhagen, Denmark, Vienna, Austria. All these places I visit every year. But I can only go there because I can take care of my legs now. I have some tools. So he said, you need to pick battles small enough to win and big enough to matter. And the only way you can do that is to know your neighborhood, know your community. Because otherwise you can't enter. So we're here, and we have a little while longer on this retreat, and I really encourage you to enter. Don't hold back. Enter the breath. Watch what happens when you make a vow to be in your body. And this is the heart of yoga. (coughs) This is the heart of intimacy. This is the heart of interdependence. It's the parasol. It's your life. Nobody can do it for you. And then you get to know your neighborhood. This year, the neighborhood is this skin bag. And maybe next year, I'll also have a garden. Or maybe I've been giving so much. Now I just need to take care of this body (coughs) that is not breathing easily. And then you're a bodhisattva. You're serving interdependence. So maybe a bodhisattva is someone who's just connected to what they love. And they do something about it. And if we can't get still and concentrate, then we're not connected to what's important. We're floating around, looking out there. So, we have a little while left in our retreat. I encourage you to enter. Enter the parasol. the matrix of this body and this land and this river out here. That river which is you when you're fluid. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.